welcome to another episode of Behind the Bracer. In this episode, our host, Scott Sempier, talks on the phone with 26-time Dove Award winner and two-time Grammy-winning composer David T. Clydesdale. Mr. Clydesdale discusses his career highlights, including working with his wife. He also discusses how he connected with Jeffrey Smith and one of his favorite memories in the Philadelphia Boys Choir. Enjoy! Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Philadelphia. Behind the Blazers, the official podcast of the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale. We've been singing in Philadelphia and all around the globe for over 50 years. As America's ambassadors of song, we have had many fantastic experiences, traveling to many different countries and meeting amazingly talented and wonderful people. The great leadership and high standards of the choir have allowed us to have these opportunities. This podcast, Behind the Blazer, is designed to introduce you to the Philadelphia Boys Choir culture. Season 2, in particular, highlights some of the many partners we have had in the Philadelphia region who have joined us to help create even more excellent music. In our last episode of Behind the Blazer, I interviewed Joe Fitzmartin, who described the joys of composing music. Today I have with me over the phone a man whose job it is to compose and arrange music, a two-time Grammy winner and 26-time Dove Award winner whose works have helped the careers of over 300 artists including Sandy Patty and Aretha Franklin, joins us on Behind the Blazer. David T. Clydesdale, coming to us from Tennessee, has written music that can be heard at Disney World, Six Flags, and Sight and Sound Theater, among many others. He's our guest today because he also has a connection to the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale. Welcome to Behind the Blazer, David. Scott, it's good to be here. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I just wanted to do one edit. For some reason... Wikipeak decided that I had worked with Aretha Franklin, and I checked every resource possible, and she did an arrangement that I did for Sandy Patty on her album, so maybe that's the connection. Otherwise, I've never personally met her, so I love the credit, but I just, one-on-one, I have not met her at all. Okay, well, I appreciate that. Thank you for that. But I'm sure you've worked with a a bunch of other very well-established artists, and you've had a career starting in 1974, and you've been very successful with all that you've done. So you know, you talk about 1974, which is amazing because I'm only 40 years old. So I don't know how that works. I would say like 90% of my work has been within the gospel music world. Which you said, Sandy Patty, I guess names people would know, Steve Green. Larnell Harris, Dino, Pat Boone, Debbie Boone, those type of people that have done gospel. But yet Disney World has called me to do scores for them. I still have a cruise line show that I'm, that's running for them. And then up in your area, you have that Sight Sound Theater in Lancaster. And I think I've written a dozen of their soundtracks. So just a variety of different Quite the gamut of different corporations and opportunities that you've had. What has been most impactful to you, or maybe even the most challenging of all these different organizations? Well, when I first started in the gospel music world, I kind of created these very big, dramatic, almost film score type things, and and I got my hand slapped right away, saying that's not the style. It's funny when I started that kind of the Bee Gees style was what was in, 
and I was doing a complete big symphonic thing. I remember doing a song for Sandy Patty, and the producer said, that's the last one you're ever going to do, because he said, with that dial of music, I don't know what to do with you. And that style became called Inspirational Gospel, and all of a sudden, Sandy Patty sang the song I had arranged called We Shall Behold Him, and then there was no stopping her. And so that was the sound then that this producer told me not to do. These 25 artists said, uh, what's this phone number? Because we want the thing Sandy's doing, so how do we get that kid? I could say kid those days. So that was kind of the hurdle was I was starting something new, but to the people that were in place, it was like, oh, this will never work. And I guess we were creating a whole different sound because the thing about working with those artists is that sound, um, I don't know if everyone will understand it, translated to choirs well. So all of a sudden churches and choirs wanted those arrangements because it worked well in their world of choral music. And so we kind of opened that door too. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. You're kind of a pioneer. Did you realize that you were pioneering no, no, in the no, industry? No, 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 not at all. I, I, I think if I went back over my life again, Scott, I would say enjoy the moments while they were happening. I'm literally standing there with a London Symphony Orchestra conducting for Plot Notes Mingo going, oh my goodness, is, it gonna, is this going to be done on time? Is it going to work? Is it going to, is that instead of saying, why am I not enjoying this moment? They're doing my arrangement right now. And, you know, Plot Notes Mingo singing in the booth, I should be enjoying this. But I'm always one of those people, no, I'll enjoy it when it's mixed and I'm home. You know, when I'm at the session or I'm at the Carnegie Hall or wherever the performance is, Usually I'm in knots during that just to make sure it happens, and I enjoy it later. I think that would be my biggest detriment is I don't live in the moment because I'm so concerned that the project goes well. Well, sure, and you spend so much time and effort and energy to make sure that everything goes off well, and so I can understand that, you know, there's all, all these concerns. Glad to hear that it sounds like you are able to enjoy it later. How long does it take you to compose? I guess it varies, but how long does it take you to compose a piece from start to finish? Well, well you know, I'm not, try, I'm not trying to be weird about this, but I mean, it is joked in the business. Uh, I am absolutely the fastest people. People that do an arrangement take, you know, two or three weeks, and I, if someone gives me a chart, I've gotten, the biggest hits for me were given to me at 8 o'clock at night, and they recorded them at 10 a.m. the next morning. In my career, the three biggest songs of my career, I got at 10 o'clock at night, a blank piece of paper. It was Sandy's Star Spangled Banner. It was Sandy's We Shall Behold Him. And I can't think of what the third one was, but I mean, I started at night without a computer, with a pencil. And I wrote and wrote and about three in the morning. The copyist picked it up from my house and copied the parts through the rest of the night. And at 10 a.m. we started and recorded this hit song. So I didn't even have time to think. And so right now, I'm going to Prague exactly one month from today, and I have three months to do 32 arrangements with full orchestra, and that's just the way it works. I'll get it done in the three months. Sometimes I'll get something done in three or four hours, and then this artist I'm working with now gave me this incredible arrangement of Carol of the Bells with Sing Me Now of Christmas, and it's going to take three or four days because it's so intricate what she wanted from me that I just can't casually write strings to be done. I mean, I've got to look at every instrument several times. So, But but pretty pretty quick on getting stuff done, yeah. Yeah, 
that sounds incredibly fast. I can't imagine. Is that because of your skill? Is it because of your experience? Or why is it that you're so fast? You know what? It's funny. I have many good friends in this business, and it does. It just matters. Some people, like I've been told, this, this one friend I've been working with, he, he keeps looking back too much. It's like he never likes anything he writes. And by the time he's done the chart, he starts again on the strings, and then he starts again on the strings. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know if I'm wrong or not, but I go with my gut. And if I've written those strings, I'm going to go with my gut my first take and say, let's see if this is it. Because I think sometimes when I work with a client, and sometimes this happens with places like Disney, you'll do a dozen arrangements of the song, and it just never seems to be quite what somebody down there wants. And then they finally decide they want the first arrangement. <laughs> And I'm like, well, yeah, but they say to me things like, well, now we know for sure. We didn't know for sure then. I'm like, yeah, but I could have told you my first one was probably my best gut. Then I start questioning everything I'm doing. When we're up to number 10, I don't know what to do because I'm not sure who I'm writing for anymore. I'm, you know, who is going to approve this and what do they want? So, yeah, I would rather just kind of jump in and go for it. That sounds great. And when you say, you also said, you know, in three months you have 32 arrangements with a full orchestra. How many different pieces are in the orchestra that you have to write for? Well, I'm using the Prague, the city of Prague Philharmonic, and there's about 65 players in the, on the floor of the orchestra. But we've also done some synthesizer work before that in which all the percussion, all the harp, and all the rhythm has been done by a synth programmer so that all my artists can listen to that much and say, speed it up, slow it down, the ending's too long, can we make it a little shorter? We can pretty much tweak it, and then we can say to the artist, now, when you're in Prague, relax and enjoy the orchestra sessions because you've already signed off on all the tempos, on all the retards, on all the key changes, so don't worry about that now. Now we have to chop wood, which is literally get a song with the orchestra every 30 minutes. That's, that's from sight reading to recording the orchestra and then usually we record the strings again so we have double the string section so in 30 minutes that's what we have to get for like three days of that and we just have to move it my last prog session was in august and we did 57 cuts in five days i mean none of us could breathe but we got it done (laughs) yeah (laughs) wow wow that's uh (laughs) well the reason for that was i kept stacking up artists because of prog I mean, I'd get their project written, and we book the flights and everything, and then they cancel us because of COVID, and they let delay a few months. Meanwhile, I'm working on another project. By the time we're done, we've got five or six projects going down the same week of all these people that have waited for clearance because of COVID, and finally they cleared us August 8th of last year, and we went in, but we needed six days with the orchestra because there was so much material to be done. Wow, so it's kind of like the floodgates kind of opened up for you then, it sounds like. Yeah, it did. In fact, I'm doing three albums when I go in one month, and I've had two other people ask me to do theirs, and I said, can we hang to like November or something? Because I've learned three days of orchestra is about as much attention span and energy as I have in one trip. Let's do these three people, get their three albums done, let them get mixed, then go on. I said, it's just, I remember there's a, there's a big open area in my office, and I had each project in a stack. And I mean, I had 
seven stacks with ten songs in each, and it was like there was no more room for me in the office. It was like we, I don't want to do that much at once, so let's take a six month leave on the next one, and we'll start you up in like October, as long as they can do that. I mean, if you're doing a Christmas album with somebody, they don't want it in October; they want it done in June, so they can get it out in July for that year. So it sometimes it matters, or if it's a television special and there's a release date. You gotta not miss the release date. So sometimes it matters on that. But other albums, people are like, when it's done, it's done, and I'll put it out. And so it just matters on the client. Sure. Going back a little bit, I want to rewind to the beginning of your composition days. What was uh, the inspiration that you had to begin composing? I, I read that you started composing in seventh grade. Can you tell us about how you began composing? You know what? It's funny. I had There was a little orchestra at my church in Philadelphia and it had like 12 players and I took a hymn and I kind of scribbled out parts of them and did it and I, I, I'd be embarrassed to death to hear it now but I was in junior high school at a very good high school in Philadelphia I think it was called Fells is there a Fells junior high school in, in Philadelphia? I think there is still and um, I wrote an arrangement and overture for the orchestra there that was a good orchestra my director took one look at it and he said I don't want to just do it I want you on the podium conducting it. And I think that was the start of it. Even in high school, I went to Frankfurt High School. Even in high school, I took the story of Scrooge and I made it into a 90-minute musical. I mean, I wrote all the songs, all the lyrics, and orchestrated it and conducted it. And everybody thought it was a joke until the music department got together and played through it and said, oh my goodness, this actually works. It makes sense. And it got me to the point, actually, at the end of each year, the Philadelphia school system used to have a, they were looking for the male musician of the year and the female musician of the year at graduation, and they would give them college money towards their first year. And I wasn't a great player. But okay. when I was in the audition, one of the guys in Philadelphia said, no, wait, 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 wait. Are you that kid that wrote that Scrooge musical over at Frankfurt High School? I said, yeah. He goes, I was in the audience that night. I never heard anyone as a high school senior write a musical, and I actually won the award, and that was my first year at Wheaton College because of this award from Philadelphia. So obviously they got my playing on piano and cello didn't get me in. What got me in was that they saw the writing potential for my future, so that's kind of what won the situation, which surprised me a lot. That's really great to see how you created your own opportunity in so many ways. Well, well, Scott, it, and you know, and when you go back to Frankfurt High School, you're going back to Dr. Hamilton being the director of the choir in my early years of, of high school. He had he called the choir there the ambassadors of song, and I think maybe in my tenth grade year is when he was asked to do the Philadelphia Boys Choir. And I think that's when he moved down there. So like in my junior year of, of high school, he left Frankfurt High School and went to the boys' choir from there. So that's my connection to him. Okay. And was that he moved from there over to the boys' choir. And then eventually, Dr. Jeff and I got to know each other. Uh, we talked about it this morning because I said, just remind me how we met because I'm not sure. But he reminded me how that went. <laughs> Can you tell us more about how you continued to be part of the boys' choir culture and how you met Jeff and whatnot? Well, I, I never sang in the boys' choir or anything like that. I knew who they were, and 
of the directors said, do you know Jeffrey Smith? And I said, no. They said, oh, he is the director of the Philadelphia Boys Choir now, and he plays piano for us at a lot of dress rehearsals and things like that. You know, would you like his phone number, or would you like to meet him? And I called, or I think that producer called the next day, Jeff, and said, hey, David Clydesdale's here for three days with his wife working on a project. Any chance you guys want to meet at lunch? And it's funny, that's how we remembered it this morning. We don't remember everything. We remember it was Thai food at the Lemongrass Restaurant in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We sat down to lunch one day, and that was the official meeting. And then Jeff started to call me and say, I know you're arranging. Would you like to do something for us? And that's where it began. I many times, many times, Scott, I would just write to Jeff and say, I got nothing going on for two weeks. I don't want money. What can I do for you? He goes, Well, I've always wanted joy to the world for the boys and a great, fantastic arrangement. I'm like, Okay, let's do it. And I would spend the next week doing that, sending it to him. And the cool thing with Jeff was, Jeff wasn't a yes man, and that's like, you said to him, he's like, Okay, that's it. He's always like, well, maybe here we could do this, and maybe here we could mess with this a little bit. And, I mean, he had great ideas, and no problem with me. I mean, you can talk to me. I felt like both of our names needed to be on every one of the arrangements because he had such great ideas, you know, of things to do. So I think I did Oh Holy Night. I think, I think Joy, Joy to the World, you guys sang on Good Morning America. I did The Amazing Grace. I think you guys took over to London and did that. I did an original piece for you guys called An American Trilogy. Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem. And I think probably there's a dozen more that I can't remember right now. That's quite a few pieces you've done. What inspired you to donate your talent and your time to the boys' choirs so that you volunteered to do this? You know what? My wife will say this all the time about me. David's so much nicer when he has work. You know, when he doesn't have work and there's nothing going on, within 48 hours I'm going through this, oh, my life is over and nobody wants me anymore and my career's over. And so she'd go to me, why don't you call somebody that could use something and just offer it to them, no charge. So there's some big Baptist churches around the country and I'd call and say, hey, you need an overture for Easter in three months? Yeah, okay, let me do it for me. Tell me what five songs you wanted and and I did that a lot with Jeffrey. I just say, I got some time, Jeffrey. What do you want? You know, and I'd rather do that than do nothing. The music business is just, got it's feast or famine. It's like you've got nothing going on for three weeks, and then you've got 30 charts to do in the next two months. It, I mean, I see studio singers in Nashville that don't sing for two weeks, then they're singing until midnight seven days in a row. I mean, it's just, this is not, we always joke about this is not making screen doors. It's music. You just don't know how, when, or where, or how long it's going to take, and you kind of got to roll with it a little bit. So that's just kind of the way the music business works. You always have something going on, and if you don't, you have to create it to keep yourself going. So you're very motivated, very creative, and the whole concept of being an artist. We're happy to hear that Mr. Clydesdale thinks about the Philadelphia Boys Choir when he has some free time. We have benefited greatly from his musical collection. Just a moment ago, he was talking about arranging O Little Town of Bethlehem. Here is one of David T. Clydesdale's arrangements of O Little Town of Bethlehem. Enjoy!
transition back from some of the genius of David T. Clydesdale's work, we talk to the genius himself. Just what does a day in the career of the composer look like? How has he kept up with the changing needs of the industry? Keep listening, because these questions and more will be answered straight away. What does a, a day in the life of David T. Clydesdale look like when you are writing? Do you shut yourself up in a hole and just play for or write for 10 hours, or how does that work? Uh, well, let me, let me just explain how things happen. Because I worked in gospel music so much, a lot of these companies that were gospel music printers wanted me to sign like a five-year exclusive, meaning I would only write for them, and that would say, you're going to write a Christmas musical, an Easter musical, and you're going to write 10 arrangements during the next year, and you can't write for any other company but us, but that would come, of course, with benefits, you know. Well, one day we were out in California, and my wife was directing a 300-voice children's choir, and she came home and she said, man, I don't like the music that's out there for children's choirs in the church. I said, so what do you want to do? And she said the worst thing she could have said. She said, I think I want to write my own. I went, oh, no. Now, my wife was a professional singer. She was Miss Illinois. She was in pageants. She sang at Opryland, Six Flags. I mean, she did sing as a professional. But after we got married, she stopped doing that. And so out in California, when she announced she was writing a children's musical, the first reaction was, oh, please, somebody help me. I mean, this is, this is not going to go well. And now my wife has 42 published musicals and six Dove Awards as the Writer of the Year, so I guess it did work. <laughs> um, she had stopped as of about a year ago and just said, I've got 42, I don't have anything more to say. It's time to play with the grandbabies. But she was very much accomplished, but that became a big part of my life because when they would sign me for five years, they would sign Celeste too because they knew I had to do her two musicals every year. I'd have to be the one to produce those for her. So that was part of my contract. You know, Christmas, Easter, Octavos, and two Celeste musicals. You know, and I did that, I think, for about 35 years with Celeste. And she's a great musician, but she would literally stand in front of me and sing the song. There was no music. She wouldn't write it down. She would just sing me the song, and I'd have to take it down and play it back and say, is this what you're looking for? And we tweak it and mess with it. And uh, at first it was like, oh, I don't want to write children's musicals. This is not what I'm here to do. Right. But after I saw her success, it kind of became fun. And then our kids were at the age, they could sing on the project. And so it was like a whole family thing. So, But my day is pretty much, you know, get up coffee, go to the gym and get a little exercise in. I do some journaling and some reading in the morning and then I start into my music and one little thing my wife and I do almost every day is we get this thing called home chef and I make the lunch every day I make <laughs> I cook lunch for both of us so I have this home chef then I go back to my office till about five o'clock and keep writing and try to turn off the light about five and say let's now let's watch tv or let's take a slower evening I don't like to go around the clock and I'm not I'm not don't make me a night person. I had to do that a few weeks ago. I I had a guy call me at 10 o'clock at night that needed a charge the next morning. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it because you're stuck, but don't make this a habit. <laughs> I mean, call me during the day. I'm fine. But when I start at 10 at night till 4 in the morning, I'm messed up for the next week. So don't, I try not to do that. I try to I kind of keep my 
Uh, right. With our office at home. I try to keep that separate so Celeste doesn't have to hear my work, you know, like loud in the house. I'm upstairs in, the, in my office. So that, that's how that goes. Yeah, I consider myself a creative person as well. You know, obviously not as accomplished as you are by any means, but I do know that when I'm writing, for instance, a lot of times there's a breakthrough that happens when I'm not with pen to paper. Um, Do you find that you're inspired or you have a breakthrough when you're so-called off the clock? And if so, what do you do with that? I'm going to use a music word here or a business word. I don't like doing things on spec. Now that that translates speculation, in other words, okay, we're looking for a commercial for this. Anyone that wants to submit something has to be done by tomorrow. Well, I'm like, you know what? I don't want to do that because I've done 200 songs like that that fell into the trash can because they didn't get accepted. I'd rather have someone call and say, I have a project for you. Here are the 10 songs. So, you know, or I have a project, we need to write three together, but we know what we're doing. So I like to do that now. When you talk about outside inspiration, let's say I'm in the car going to the grocery store and I have a classical music channel and I hear an interesting combination of French horn and English horn and cello and I go, ooh, Put that in the back of your head, David. That's, that's a kind of interesting combination. You've never done that. Maybe, you know, there was a joke out there when I used to stand in front of a thousand choir directors and I used to say, boy, I hope John Williams does a new movie soon because I need an ending for my Easter musical. You know? <laughs> like, because I was like, wanting to see what he was going to do at the end of Jurassic Park and listen to it and go, now there's some inspiration. So, Sometimes you're just listening to a film or television, and I don't have to write it down. It just goes into this file in my head. That now that was kind of a unique. Start out with pipe organ, then add French horn, then kick into the orchestra. And I heard it on the radio. I thought that might work on this new opening I'm doing. That kind of idea. So you know, nothing's original under the sun, Scott. We know. I mean, I don't want to steal from anybody, but there's also only eight notes in the scale, and you know. We have to stay within certain parameters. Sure. How do you get so involved in the music scene? How do you write all these different pieces? How do you hear all this music and yet you still are able to come up with something original every single time? How how does that work for you? <laughs> you know what? There are times you sit here in front of the computer and you see the song and you go, man, I, I mean, I'll be serious. There's two songs, Scott, two songs that I've got 85 arrangements of. And that's Oh Holy Night and the song How Great Thou Art. 85 arrangements is what I've done of that because every artist I've worked with on a Christmas album has done Oh Holy Night. And so you're trying to be creative and fresh, but you know they don't want Oh Holy Night done as a cha-cha-cha. I mean, they want it to be a beautiful, inspiring piece. You know, and so you've got to stay within parameters and look for, okay, what's my different intro? And I remember a girl called me a couple months ago for an Oh Holy Night. I said to her, would you mind if I wrote lyrics for a new second verse for you? And she's like, oh, why? I said, because I want yours to be different than anybody else's. And I think to introduce some new lyrics and freshen it up, that's exactly what we did with Sandy Patty's Star Spangled Banner that made her so famous was, you know, it was going to be for the lighting of the Statue of Liberty when it got refurbished. And they asked me to do the arrangement. Everybody had all these weird ideas. I said, okay, here's my weird idea. Paul, and I, 
I gave him the name at that point, Claire Clonger, who was one of the great lyricists in church music. I said, call Claire, get her started on the lyrics. It's something like this. And even today, the torch still burns on and make it work to the tune of the Star Spangled Banner. And I said, that's what we should say. We should sing the Star Spangled Banner, but then we should say, and even today, the torch burns on and brings freedom of hope. And she spun out on that. I had the lyrics the next morning, and I went, now there it is. There's a fresh approach to the song with new lyrics. And I did Star Spangled Banner in the new lyrics in 4-4 instead of 3-4, so it had a more pop feel to it. And you just, I don't know, you just sit here looking at an empty screen, Scott, and then you go, okay, I got to do something, so let's, let's get started. Um, I used to work with a great writer out in Los Angeles, and we would write in this building, we had a conference room, and sometimes he'd look at me, he'd go, David, I need to take a walk, and he would just leave the building, walk around the building for 10 minutes, and every single time he would come back in, he'd go, I got it. said I, I'm a little bit of a writer. I'm trying not to get too much into my own personal stuff. I have a, a piece, a song that I wrote because I don't do any musical writing at all. I just do the words. But you know what, what, what's interesting, Scott, you should say that. You know, there was a guy that moved to Nashville years ago. His name is Tony Wood. And every song Tony wrote, he would, you know, show it to different people in the companies and they'd go, ah, it, it's not a 10, it's like a 6 or a 7. And he worked forever and ever. Finally, one of the guys called on the side at one of the companies and said, Tony, can I tell you something that maybe you don't want to hear? You don't write music well, but you write incredible lyrics. Stop writing music. Just write the lyrics and get together with a great songwriter and let him take your lyrics and see what he can do with them. Since then, he's had 600 songs recorded. Wow. He finally found out, I'm a lyricist. That's what I am. I mean, I'm not. And there's other people go to them and they had these great melody and they'll play these wonderful melodies and you go well, what's the song called i don't know i just know what the melody is and i even worked with a great lyricist one time deborah craig claire on a musical she said right here david i need a passionate song a ballad that just andrew lloyd weber like big and full i said okay where are the lyrics no you write the song i'll chase you and i literally would write it do a piano demo and deborah would come back with the lyrics the next day Exactly matching my melody, and they made sense. Wow. But she wanted, she didn't have any ideas, but once I gave her some music, she's like, now I have ideas. These leaps you're doing make me think of writing words about. As I climb mountains, I mean, the leap made me think of that. And I'm like, okay, you know, so sometimes, it, this is not brain surgery, but this is just, you know, a phrase a friend of mine used to use was, Let's throw it against the wall and see if it sticks, you know? <laughs> and I know that's a kind 
I don't know if this is a 10. I don't know if this is the greatest thing we've ever done or the worst thing we've ever done. Let's throw it out there and see how people react. And it's interesting. Something's the best thing you've ever done. Nobody buys. Mm. And then something that you don't think is very valuable at all. I mean, I wrote a song. I wrote music to a song called Holy Is He. And I got words from Claire Cloninger. I mentioned her name about the Stars Like Banner. And I did a simple little melody with it. And I realized... You know, if, if I could write this melody on this holy as he, so it sits on top of the hymn, holy, holy, but don't let anybody know that for five minutes. Do this song, holy as he, and then when we get to the final key change, magically, these two songs work on top of each other. And I just got that idea, and I did that. You know what? It's my number one anthem for 48 years. It's still selling like crazy every day. And churches all over America. I just got a note from a friend of mine I hadn't seen 25 years that, oh, we did Holy of Peace Sunday. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's like 48 years old. Are you serious? But you never know the one that's going to stick. Yeah. So I, always was told, I always was told by people, and I always thought it was a funny joke, was once you get a song in the hymnal, you're going to die. <laughs> once you make a hymnal, you're going to die. And the only one I have that made a hymnal is Holy of Peace. And the first time it came out, I went, oh no. I, now I'm an old person and I can't write anymore because I'm in a hymnal. <laughs> it, it has to work. It's been in there 15 years and I'm still here, so I guess it's okay, you know. <laughs> well, that's that's tremendous. Yeah, that's a funny way to look at it, but yeah, it does seem to make sense. And I did want to mention, we, I did want to mention because we didn't get to say this, but I got called several years ago, maybe four, and to do a big concert at Carnegie Hall with the New York Orchestra and it was with the Christian artist Sandy Patty, Larnell Harris, and Dino Carsonakis, the piano player. And Dino said to me, I need about a 120-voice choir. And I said, Dino, I don't know where to, how to pick up a choir in New York City, you know, especially what the level we need them to be. And it really bothered me because he left it on my plate. You're the music director, so this is your problem. And I'm like, oh. I mean, I said, you don't want to hire a choir of 140 people. You want me to find one that's already in existence, and I didn't know where to begin. I thought, you know what? I don't know how far Philadelphia is from Carnegie Hall, but I'm going to make a call to Jeffrey Smith and just say, Jeff, if you guys are interested, I'll do whatever I can do to make this happen. He said, wait, David, did you just ask my boys to sing at Carnegie Hall? I said, yeah. He said, I think you have your answer. I said, really? He goes, yeah, let's just work out all the details and the buses and the meals and how it's going to work and all that kind of stuff. And he said, I'm going to have to cut you off. I think he said, at 16 songs, that's all we can learn. So if there's 24 in the program, don't put us on all of them. Put us on like the 16 you want us on. He says, because I mean, I got to teach all this music to all these guys and we're not studio singers. It was like April 10th that you guys came up there and I mean, my artists at first were like, well, who are they? You know, and we were one song in and Sandy Patty turned around to me. I was at the podium and, and tears were in her eyes. And she said, I'm not going to get through this night if they keep singing. She goes, oh, my goodness. She said, I've got chills. And so she was in tears after the first song. Wow. And, um, it was an emotional night. I mean, you guys just did not. I, you guys actually did what I thought you were going to do. And I thought you were going to steal the show. And you did. I mean, when you talk to anybody, say, what was the highlight? The Boys Choir, you know, and not Sandy, not Larnell, not, not, you know, it was the Boys Choir were the highlight.
highlight of the night. So I was so glad to be able to do that with Jeff and you guys. I mean, that was just, I thought I had it again for you guys. And then COVID came in and I, the concert got canceled, but maybe it'll get back on again. That's a tremendous testimony to the boys choir and it's a great story. I'm so glad to hear it, to think that, you know, Sandy Patty is this accomplished gospel singer and children's singer too, just heard the boys choir and was so moved. That's that's tremendous in itself as well. Yeah, I mean, we had this beautiful ending and the boys had a kind of high and they were singing it so pure and all that Sandy just turned around and said, oh my word, I haven't heard a sound like that in 25 years, David. That's just absolutely angelic. You know, and you could just tell she was extremely. She said to me halfway through the day, I don't know what's going on, but I'm an emotional mess today. I said, I think it's the combination of all this stuff coming together and it's, it's working. You know, everybody was wondering, is this going to work? Because, oh, yes. You know, I talked about me not being in the moment, me being nervous all the time. What I would define Carnegie Hall as the worst three hours of your entire life and then the best three hours of your entire life. The worst three is the rehearsal time, which you've got to get everything done, and the orchestra has never played it in their sight reading. So you've got to get through 24 songs, and we never got through the two curtain calls. We never rehearsed them. We never got that far. But then the concert was the best three hours of my life, because I'm a, I'm a performer. I mean, I was loving every second of it. The audience was loving it. The orchestra was with me. And we got to those encores, and I thought, well, we haven't rehearsed them. Here goes. And both encores came off flawless with the orchestra. It's amazing how people will focus when they have to. And I, you get 65 feet symphony on there, and there's this certain thing about professional players where they go, you know what? If you can do it, I can do it. You know? And they kind of take on each other, and then they don't make a mistake. They just play it perfectly. And I still remember that night as just going, this has been the funnest three hours I've ever had and the worst day of just trying to pull all this stuff. Because it was a union hall, I couldn't even move my music stand. I had to call somebody over to move it. And I just had to get, get adjusted to what life is like when it's full union Carnegie. Everything must be done by their people according to their manual. And I just had to kind of realize I'm not supposed to lift a music stand even. I mean, we, if you want something done, you ask them. And so that was just adjusting to that when we got there, too. So Yeah, that, that is a very unusual uh, situation. I hadn't even thought about that before. But I'm glad to hear that you were able to enjoy Carnegie Hall so much, considering that you said that, you know, when you're hearing your music, you're being skeptical and you're nervous and not always able to enjoy it. So that's a, that's a pretty awesome moment that you were able to enjoy that so Well, much. it was interesting because, you know, Sandy, Patty, and Lauren L. Harris are such artists that they lead the orchestra with their voice. I mean, it really takes pressure off of you. And, of course, Sandy had her piano there, so we knew at least her piano was going to be rock solid behind her because he played all of her shows for 10 years. So we knew we had that there behind her, and he was 100% on the money, and Sandy, when she does a retard, you don't have to worry about where it's going to end. She is just so physical about what she does with her microphone that all you have to do is glance at her microphone, and you know where she's going to put one, and just follow her. And um, once they got there, it was like, oh, well, you guys are in charge. I'll just stand back here and enjoy the evening. And so that was kind of fun, you know, too, because when you're in the studio, they're not with you, and you're you know, you're, like I said, 
neither of them showed up at the session. So it's like, I've got London Symphony, I'm guessing, is Plasto and Glenn Close going to like these tempos? Because they're not here. But with the schedule she had of Sunset Boulevard on Broadway, and the schedule he had in the opera world, I mean, they don't have three days to fly to London and sit with an orchestra. Right. So they expect you to get it done, and then they'll add their voice when it's time to add it. And in those situations, I think that's where you're fearing, oh, I hope they like it, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, and you know what? I've been in the business now 48 years. Yeah, there have been times where a client has said, I, it's not what I had in mind. I'm not sure about it. But I had a client say that to me one time. I don't think this is right, and I don't think I'm going to put it on the album. Then he did. And it won Song of the Year at the Gospel Award. So I'm like, well, <laughs> guess who won that one? So, you know, you obviously were, you obviously couldn't hear it when it was going down, but everybody else in the room was going, this is working. I think you need to go ahead and do your vocal because I think this is working. But you just, you just do that all the time. I mean, sure. If you want, if you want security, don't go into music. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or it seems like almost any uh, artistic outlet, right? <laughs> but yeah. Um... You know what's funny? My daughter was in college, and in her last year, she had to give a speech, and the speech she made was on, it doesn't matter what your degree is, you can still be successful in this world. And she gave her 20-minute little minute little speech, and at the end, the teacher said, that was very interesting. Courtney, can I ask you one question? Are your parents in the arts? <laughs> and she said, yeah. She goes, See, I want my surgeon and my doctor to have a degree. <laughs> I want to know that they have a degree, but I don't want to know if the, the star on stage singing on Broadway has a degree. I just want to, I guess the show's great, the show's great, so I don't care anything about where they went to college. But I want to know that my dentist and my doctor and my surgeon, they have all have their diplomas on the wall of the office. So, I mean, I think my daughter was just looking at us, thinking, oh, my mom and dad just kind of, you know, they just do their thing and it doesn't matter about the degrees, degrees they have. Well, yeah, I understand what her teacher was saying, you know. Right. Here's another sample of one of the thousands of songs that he composed, wrote, or arranged. Listen to this piece from David T. Clydesdale's triumphant arrangement of Joy to the World.
powerful rendition of Joy to the World. In addition to arranging hymns, Mr. Clydesdale has made quite a career for himself in the Christian music industry, winning 26 Dove Awards. Sight and Sound Theater, a well-known theater in our region, has performed Bible-based plays for over a generation. They have leaned on David T. Clydesdale throughout their history as well. Let's hear about his experience writing for the stage. Well, thinking about the stage and the sounds that you have created and everything, you mentioned a couple of times that you've worked for Sight and Sound, that a lot of your shows have appeared at Sight and Sound. Can you tell us about your experience with Sight and Sound and what what shows you've written for? Well, you know, I didn't know who they were the first time they called me. They called me to orchestrate, I think, a musical called Let There Be Praise, and it was 90 minutes long, and it was in a smaller theater. Now, after I did that show for them and I orchestrated it and did it in Nashville, I went up and saw it. After that, they had a fire in that entire theater burned to the ground. And when Glenn Eshelman, who was the president at that time, rebuilt, he rebuilt like 3,200 seats. I mean, he built a mega theater up there. And then a lot of times they call me for little things like, okay, we have a Christmas show, but we want to change two songs in it. Can you write a new Gloria? Can you write a new... Mary song or our, our, our crucifixion scene in the Easter musical we want to extend it about five minutes and we want to get more da 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 can you add a piece for this but I did a lot of musicals that they wrote and then brought me in to be the arranger orchestrator and conductor of it and get it done but there was a musical I think it was called In the Beginning on creation that I wrote all two and a half hours every single lyric every single every single arrangement. I've done that several times for them. This Esther, Queen Esther, which is the last one they opened, I was brought in after the whole thing was written. And they really, because it was Queen Esther, they wanted a very Middle Eastern sound to the soundtrack. So we had to go and get some really novel instruments in Los Angeles. I mean, the orchestra was Prague, but we had to get all these zithers and weird percussion instruments to give it that flavor of Far East and stuff like that. So that was interesting to do. And then the next musical that was on the boards was actually David. And I had done a show called David for them, Psalms of David. But it was at one point they had the 3,000-seat theater, and then down the street they had a theater that sat 800. Now, they did a lot smaller in there. They would do like 16 people, not 45 on stage. I did several shows for them, and I did write a show about David for that theater down there. But then the newest David musical just opened this week, and I, I wanted to be part of it. And when I called to say, can I get involved, they said, you don't realize we work two years ahead. This thing is done and in the can already. We It's completely auditioned. We have the cast, and we start rehearsals in two months. So they're always working ahead. While a musical is being recorded, three others are being created. Right. You know, And so I'm not doing as much writing for them now as I am bringing me into orchestrate and take it to the next step and get it recorded. So it just meant I've probably been involved with a dozen projects there over, I don't know how long that company has existed. I know when my daughter was three years old, she sang Jesus Loves Me on one of the soundtracks because they wanted the little kids singing before they went into the scene. She had a little lift, but she was only three years old and they put her on a little stool in the studio in Nashville so she could get up to the mic sang it in this cute little voice and it would come through the speakers up there and then it would go into the scene and now the girl that's three that did that is a professional 
professional music therapist in Houston in, in her mid-30s, so I guess I've been with her for a while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a really darling moment. Actually, her, the Jackie, if you did move on professionally, she up, wound up doing the Broadway and wound up mostly doing Patsy Cline around the country at all different places. She would do Patsy Cline, and that show always Patsy is 28 solos a show. So it was a very demanding thing to do, and she did that, oh, three or four or five years of doing Patsy all around the country. So he even brought her in from New York to be Patsy in Nashville, which makes no sense whatsoever. Why they wouldn't use a Nashville singer to be Patsy Cline, I don't know, but they brought her in to do that. So, you know, my kids were involved with music, too. You have a daughter who's a music therapist. You have other children who are still in music, you said? Well, um, Courtney is a couple years older than Jackie. She's married and she gave me two great grandbabies, Rhett and Charlie, four and three. And she only lived a mile from us. But now with two children in right now, and her husband's a pharmacist or works in the pharmaceutical world, she's had, had, to, she's had to stop everything. I mean, she used to do swing choir. and She used to do a lot of these, I don't know what it's called, when you help produce the convention. Another way where it's like General Electric brings 20,000 people to an arena for three days and does that thing. And they hire a production company to take care of all the sets and lighting and music and all of that. And I still remember she called me once. She said, Dad, my job is to get a new song for Sherwin-Williams for their convention. And we had 20 people submit songs, and none of them are working. I said, uh, hello, Courtney. <laughs> she goes, oh, Dad, I, I can't ask my dad. I said, well, let's do it this way. You know, let me do what I do, Courtney, but just put Bill Smith on the song. Don't let them know. And I wrote this wonderful song and cut a demo of it with great singers. She took it into her bosses and played it, and they went, well, I don't know where you got that, but that's the song, you know? Nice. And she never told him her, her dad wrote it. She always said, oh, I found this guy, and he wrote it for us. And then it was like the day of the show down in Orlando. It's, what do they call the center down in Anaheim or Amway Center or something like that down in Orlando? It, it was a huge center for Sherwin-Williams. And she called me the more, that morning and said, Dad, the big finale is tonight and it's going to have 400 people on stage doing your song for the end of the show. And she said, it's just absolutely bringing the house down. I said, that's great. She goes, no, that's not great. Get on a plane and get down here. For crying out loud, you know, we'll cover you. Just come to the Amp Jam Arena, knock on the back door, and I'll let you in, and you can see your song. So I got the first plane I could from Nashville down to Orlando and went and saw the finale of the Sherwin-Williams show. The funny thing was, I thought it was a man named Sherman Williams. So that's what I recorded with the studio singers. And Courtney heard it and went, Dad, it's, it's not Sherman, it's Sherwin. <laughs> two men, Mr. Sherwin and Mr. Williams. I said, okay, well, tell them before we do the final show, I'll fix it. No, no, no. you got to go in the studio and fix this before I present it to them, or I'll lose the gig. I mean, if they hear that we don't even know the name of the company... You know, we're working with them on their convention, so I had to bring the studio singers just to go. Every time we got to the word Sherman, they'd go, go, Sherwin, and that's all they would sing. And then they'd let the rest of the track go, and Sherwin, they just sing that one word and fix it. I think they had to sing it eight times just to fix that one word. I had to pay all the extra money, but I, it was worth it. it. It turned out to be their hit for the, for the concert. So that's what Courtney was doing for years. But I think her wedding anniversary is six years this weekend. It's just 
having the two babies, that's where he is right now. But her mom sits her all the time. <laughs> I stopped music, and when the kids, you guys were about eight and ten, I started writing kids' musicals. I mean, there's life after the baby. Just get a few more years, and you'll be able to go back to doing some of the stuff you want to do. So. Right. Well, that's incredible. <laughs> it's a funny story about Sherwin Williams, uh, for sure. I I hadn't thought about you know what I consider to well, be a pink company being music. Got twelve studio singers in there in Nashville, and not one of the guys said to me that this is the wrong name. I guess singers don't paint their houses. I mean, I guess I guess they hire people to paint their houses because not one person corrected me, and the singers. And if I have anything even misspelled, the singers pointed out to me. And not one person said you're singing the wrong name of the company. I mean, I was kind of surprised. The people, engineers, the people in the booth, the, the other people, the extras, the 12 singers, nobody knew we had the wrong name. I mean, it, it, I thought that was funny in itself to think that none of these studio singers ever got the wrong name of the paint company, but, you know. Right. <laughs> Disaster averted. It really takes a team to work together to get things right. This sample of the Philadelphia Boys Choir singing David T. Clydesdale's Amazing Grace shows you a bit of the teamwork needed for a choir to succeed. Enjoy the beauty, not only of the voices you hear, but also appreciate Jeff Smith's instrumental musicianship and Clydesdale's arranging that makes it come alive. Now conclude our interview with David T. Clydesdale. As we close out this episode, you'll hear about his favorite moments in his career and what he's doing now. Enjoy!
So you've clearly had a, a career that has spanned so many different facets of music and how you've written for so many different companies and organizations. You've won so many awards. What has been the most cherished, I guess the most cherished moment, whether it's winning a, an award like a Grammy or, or what it might be, is there something that really sticks in your head and you're like, this was the best moment of my career so far? You know what, I, I would say that Carnegie night was good. I did I did two nights at Radio City Music Hall with Sandy that were sold out at Take Six. I remember that. I did the Kennedy Center with Sandy for President Bush for a special evening for him. And that was that was kind of a neat thing. Now everybody got to meet President Bush and the conductor didn't get to meet him. He wasn't high enough up, so I didn't get to meet I didn't get to meet him and all the artists did. And then I wound up conducting a concert at the Coliseum in Los Angeles for 85,000 people, and there was uh, 20 million people watching on television. And it's kind of surprising because this is not where I come from spiritually at all, but Sandy was the music for the Pope when he came to L.A. Right, so wow. I, I conducted the Los Angeles Philharmonic for Sandy at the Coliseum before the Pope did math. Now, he was not out there with us for safety's sake for that hour concert. I mean, he was brought in after the concert because of safety, but it was 85,000 people at the Coliseum, and that was a really a special night to do that. And then I say, in the gospel music realm, this happened two times, and only two times. I was up for adult musical of the year, and Celeste was up for children's musical, and twice in our career, we both won the same night. So I won... I'm walking off stage and I hear them announce her name and I stopped in my steps to go, oh, this is going to be fun. My wife won too. And then that happened like 10 years later. I won for Musical of the Year and she won for Children's Musical of the Year. And it was fun to go to the press room together, husband and wife, and say, you know, people would go, listen, this is unusual. And I'm like, yeah, it really is. It's unusual that we didn't kill each other in the process too. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's how it is sometimes when you're working that close to home and making things happen but they were kind of exciting times and I think also seeing Jackie do Patsy Cline so well was a good kind of a neat thing to do and then that little thing with the other daughter about Sherwin Williams that was kind of a fun thing that that worked out to be able to do that so yeah and you've obviously impacted the Philadelphia Boys Choir quite a bit your works have been as you would said as well Philadelphia Boys Choir has used a lot of your arrangements a lot of your pieces and you know, you have this great relationship with Jeff Smith. What is your hope for the future of your relationship with the Philadelphia Boys Choir? If anything, Jeff, I talked to Jeff this morning. I mean, I, I texted him and said, Earl, like 6 a.m. and just said, hey, I want to talk to you before this interview just to make sure I've got everything right with stories. And he texted back immediately, call me now. So we did. We talked for about a half an hour just about things at work and the kids and all that kind of stuff and where we met. And, and he's just a very kind, but talented man. And a lot of the things we do, I mean, I can't do the boys' choir. I'm not, I'm not a choral expert. But we do both play piano professionally. We both do arrange. We both do orchestrate. We both conduct. I mean, there's a lot of things we both do. There's, there's no contest or competition there. Because even at Carnegie, I said to Jeff, I know this is not customary, but I have so much to worry about with the artist and the orchestra Will you stand behind the orchestra and take care of, take care of the boys and, and conduct them? 
I mean, I said I'm not used to double conductors, but I just trust with you. That's going to be a smart choice because you know what they need. And for me to focus on everything is too much right now. And he did. He did the whole concert from right behind the trumpet and conducted back there for the whole night and kept that all together. I don't even know how you sub-conduct, you know, how somebody else conducts and you stay with them. But he, he was right with me the whole night. I didn't even have to look because the boys were 100% there. And, you know, and I'd look and I'd see his smiling face the whole night. And it was always like, well, this is kind of encouraging because he came to my dressing room and said, you know, Maestro's dressing room or something at Carnegie Hall. And he came and he goes, okay, I just got to sit in the Maestro's dressing room for five minutes and tell everyone I was here. So he sat down, we had coffee in there, just sat there for 10 minutes and joked. He goes, come on, let's get one or two pictures so I can prove I was in here. So he, <laughs> he's, just a, he's just a great fun person. I just, I, he's fun to be with. He's a great guy. That's a great story about Jeff. I appreciate that. You know, first off, it says that you had a lot of trust in him to be able to conduct the choir while you were conducting everything else. My my Carnegie Hall situation was I tell people I sang at Carnegie Hall in the bathroom in intermission. <laughs> so I got to sing there. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, used to, I used to have a friend out in California, one of the pastor's wives, she always used to say, I danced on Broadway. We all thought that meant she danced on Broadway. She goes, no, I was walking down Broadway once with my husband and I started to dance. I'm like, oh, we all believed you were a star up for us. Yeah, all right. <laughs> then we find out that that was a little joke, you know. So we all thought, oh, she really was a professional dancer on Broadway. And she didn't let us know for about five years that that wasn't a true story. So. <laughs> That's great. I guess the final question is kind of a twofold thing. Do you have any advice for aspiring composers? And is there anything else that we should know about you, David Clydesdale, David T. Clydesdale, the composer?
I think one of the most important things in music that I've had to learn is, you know, you have an identity of who you are and what you do, but you cannot just do one thing. In other words, I can't write that same Star Spangled Banner style in 2022. I have to know synth and pop and different things and what's going on out there and that this style are not being used right now. That's a very old style. Or unless somebody gives me a song that's in an old style and they want it done that way, I, I understand. I had to do an arrangement last week of orchestra on a Broadway album of all that jazz. Well, guess what? They want it to sound like Chicago. You know, they don't want it to sound like something completely different. So you have to kind of study that score. But I say, you know, go for it. But don't just get one thing going sound-wise that when someone says to you, okay, you're known for your loud ending, can you do a really tender moment of just cello and piano? Yeah. And you need to step out and do that and push yourself to do that so that you just don't get this label on you that's one thing. And I would say that. Not, nothing else to know about me. I'm, I'm doing a little more grandfathering now with three babies and enjoying them. And I do things now that through the eyes of kids that I would never do. Like Thursday night, I went to the rodeo. Mm-hmm. Who goes to a rodeo? But I went to the rodeo because the kids wanted to go to the rodeo. And we stayed there till 1030. And I, don't, I didn't have fun for one second because that's not the world I live in. <laughs> but they were... They were screaming at every single, you know, bull that threw somebody off in the air and the clown and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, okay, it's hot dogs and clowns and bulls for the next two and a half hours. And they were having fun. And I thought, okay, I can do this. You know, I can go to the circus. You know, I can do this kind of stuff. So I'm kind of living the next chapter through, you know, what they're doing and all that. So that's kind of fun. That's wonderful. I'm so glad you got in the have that opportunity with your grandkids and, and really engage yeah, in their lives. Well, Scott, I appreciate so much being involved with this. I, uh, I'm just so, so proud. I was in Philadelphia a couple months ago because of a premiere in Sight and Sound. And I used to work at Wanamaker's, believe it or not, when it was uh, called Wanamaker's. I know it's not anymore. And so I got to go to all the Philly highlights that I hadn't been to because I've been out of there since I went to college in what, 75 or something. Uh, I've been out of Philadelphia, and so I've been living in other areas. So we went back there with some friends, and it was kind of fun for me because I was able to show them, you know, Independence Hall and Liberty Bell and Betsy Ross and take them to all that stuff and remember my childhood and all the trips I used to do. And I was staying right across the street from the Academy of Music, so that brought back memories because I was in the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra, and our big thing was to play at the Academy once a year you know, and I remember those days so well. Sure. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, David T. Clydesdale, for being on Behind the Blazer. It's been great to hear your story and about all the different compositions you've done. Obviously not all of them, but at least some of them. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, all the different experiences you've had. And thanks also for being such a big part of the Philadelphia Boys Choir history as well. You're, you're so welcome, Scott. God bless you guys. Look forward to what's going to happen in the This episode of Behind the Blazers Season 2 features the vocal talents of Harry Pfeiffer, Asa Johnson, Matt Stewart, Sartok Chowdhury, Arnab Chowdhury, Peter Slattery, Mark Houck, Christopher Sempier, Jonah Serrata, and Boo Long. Thanks to all who have participated in the creation of this episode.
Behind the Blazer is the official podcast of the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale. Please like, share, subscribe, and give a five-star review. Support our organization, the Philadelphia Boys and Girls Choirs, by donating at pbgcsings.org slash donate. Again, that's pbgcsings.org slash donate. Let's go!